We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. If you are selling, you lead as a hero. You've delivered Lamar Jackson. You've taken him from the other team in your area while he's still in his prime. And you bring him to your team, and all of a sudden your team is relevant. Your team is a contender. Your team can be good after you're gone. And, you know, if the team does get better after Dan Snyder is gone because it can't get much worse after he's gone, at least he can say it's not because of all the other changes that were made. It was because of me getting Lamar Jackson on my way out the door. That was Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk once again spouting his theory, his hunch that Lamar Jackson to Washington makes sense. Um, It was part of an interview with Zach Gelb on CBS Sports Network earlier today, and there was much more to it where he kind of reiterated what, what we had played for you, I don't know, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, where he thinks that Dan Snyder would love to middle finger the league with a Deshaun Watson style contract, guaranteed contract on his way out. Um, I just don't see that at all, people. I think Florio is missing the most important part, and that is they can't afford Lamar Jackson. And even if they could, Dan Snyder ain't putting $200 million into escrow on his way out. It's why Deron Payne was franchised. It's why there's been no discussion of contract extensions with people like Montez Sweat or Cameron Curl at this point. It's why we're all kind of expecting a very uneventful free agency period for the most part. No, Lamar Jackson is not coming to Washington. He's not. Um, I think what's interesting is that Florio isn't the only person that has mentioned this. I was watching NFL Live yesterday after we recorded the podcast and the Daniel Jones deal had been done and was being announced and the Jackson franchise tag was happening and all of this stuff was happening yesterday afternoon. And Ryan Clark you know, came up with Washington for Lamar Jackson. Adam Schefter suggested Washington for Lamar Jackson. I had a guest on the show, uh, the radio show this morning, Ben Volan, who's a longtime NFL writer for the Boston Globe. He mentioned Washington. Now, part of that is because when Jackson got tagged, there were a, a few teams that came out and immediately said, not interested. Atlanta, Carolina, Miami. You know, I, I thought that was odd, you know, and I know that there's a lot of discussion about it playing into the, 
you know, the collusion theory that the NFL does not want another Deshaun Watson style contract of guaranteed money. Um, and so teams are immediately, you know, uh, publicly, uh, certainly leaking out through various NFL reporters, including Diana Rossini, that they're not interested in Jackson. I did think that was a little bit strange. At the same time, you know, the Jackson situation is going to be an interesting one, uh, and I'm going to talk more about it with one of the two guests that will be on the show today, Nick Ackridge, Pro Football Focus. Love having Nick on. We'll talk a lot of quarterback stuff, stuff that happened yesterday, and draft Indy Combine, Washington, what they'll be looking for in a veteran uh, backup to Sam Howell. Um, by the way, after that, Patrick Stevens will jump on the show with us. Patrick, of course, a bracketologist, follows a lot of local sports, a lot of local college basketball, does the bracketology for Washington Post, so we'll do some college hoops with Patrick to end the show today. Um, but a lot of people have suggested Washington, especially since the field of teams, at least right now based on reporting, seems to be thin. Like it's Baltimore, and then it appears to be nobody else, obviously, right now. Um, We'll see. The Raiders apparently aren't interested. Atlanta, Carolina, Miami not interested. You know, if Aaron Rodgers doesn't go to the Jets, maybe the Jets will be interested. It's very interesting that Atlanta, in particular, after, you know, being right there on the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes uh, list, short list, that a year later they're not interested in Lamar Jackson. Look, I think the bottom line with Jackson is this. Contract is too much. Two first-round picks have to be parted with. And he's been injured during the stretch run the last two years. And I think it's possible that Baltimore will look a little bit shrewd at the end of this, having him go out, find out what he's worth on the open market, finding out that he's not worth as much, and then Baltimore is going to get him in Baltimore this year for $32.5 bucks. didn't even have to use the exclusive tag, which I thought was coming. Anyway, uh, no, uh, I would bet big money, big money, that Lamar Jackson to Washington is just conversation. And really, in many ways, and I would not say this typically about Adam Schefter in particular, kind of information that is not using a significant piece of data that is out there. And that is that this team appears to be not willing to put big money into escrow as it's being sold. Speaking of the sale, uh, Mark Maskey wrote a story about how the NFL owners uh, that are members of committees were in Palm Beach the last couple of days. And Maskey's got some anonymous um, quotes in here and has some anonymous reporting uh, in here from sources at the owners' meetings. I'll start with this. Um, The NFL team owners discussed the potential sale of the Washington Commanders and other issues regarding Snyder during these two days of committee meetings, but concluded... Uh, that concluded Tuesday, but made no decision about the prospect of taking a vote to remove him from ownership if he refuses to sell the franchise. Some owners emerged from the meeting still hopeful that Snyder will agree to sell the commanders without a vote to force a sale. 
um, said those uh, people who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of confidentiality of the bidding and the possible of uh, the possibility of an eventual legal conflict with Snyder. Yet the, the litigiousness of Snyder concerns all of these other owners. Um, other owners that Maskey spoke to apparently were not as optimistic about that prospect, the prospect of him selling the team um, uh, without a, uh, a vote to force a sale. Dan, by the way, did not attend these meetings. He's not part of, I don't believe, any of the committees. I could be wrong about that. Tanya was uh, at the league meetings. I'm not sure which committees she sits on, but there was more information um, about this uh, potential sale. And this is the most important piece of information. Another person said Snyder's desire to be indemnified against future legal liability and costs remains a major issue. If the league and other NFL owners won't provide such indemnification, Snyder would be satisfied if a prospective buyer would do that. Uh, But the demand threatens to keep a sale from occurring, uh, said that person, who predicted the deliberations over the process could continue into the summer or even into the fall. The owners will not move toward a vote to remove Snyder at the March meeting. One person said such a maneuver by the owners to force Snyder to sell his team would require the approval of at least three-quarters of the owners. So they had these committee meetings. They talked about Snyder. um, But the indemnification demand by Snyder, and this is assuming he doesn't get it from a prospective buyer, Uh, is right now a holdup. It remains, quote, a major issue, closed quote, out of Maskey's story. These owners do not want to indemnify Dan. Remember the original story on this from the Post suggested that some owners actually said, we should be getting indemnified from him. We should be getting protection from whatever's out there on him as it relates to his team and maybe even the league. So... You know, Snyder, in many ways, in a weird way, because they so desperately want him to sell the team, has a little bit of leverage. He's trying to get as much out of this as he can. He wants to sell, get out, and not have any any worries about future lawsuits against him or the league. But that was, to me, the headline out of the story, that his demand to be essentially free and clear of any legal liability and costs once he sells the team um, is a, is a, a stumbling point right now. Um, it's a bit of a roadblock right now, and he wants that before he sells the team. And the fact that some su- suggest that uh, these deliberations uh, and, and the process to sell the team could continue into the summer or even into the fall. My prediction remains Snyder sells. My prediction also remains that he sells the team, sells the team to Josh Harris. Uh, The Wizards won last night, barely beating the worst team in the NBA on a buzzer beater by Gafford after Beal airballed a final second shot. But they needed the win. All right, uh, two guests on the show, as mentioned. We'll get to Nick Ackridge coming up. Don't forget to 
Rate us and review us on Apple and Spotify, but specifically now, also follow us. If you haven't followed us, when, you, you know, when you're listening to us on Apple, there's a big plus follow button in the upper right-hand button uh, upper right-hand corner if you could follow us that w- that would be great on Spotify it's kind of mid left on the page when you're listening to the podcast if you can click and follow us that would be awesome uh, from M Taylor 8890 excellent show Kevin is a great show runner keeps the dialogue humming and offers great insight well thank you M Taylor 8890 uh, great show runner. That's the title, the term, or the title used for television show um, creators, managers, whatever you want to call them. Whoever basically takes over the uh, a show idea or has the show idea and then is in charge of running that show, they're called a great show runner. Um, they're called a show runner. Some are great, some aren't. Um, so I don't know if that's how you meant uh, to describe the term. But yes, uh, I am the showrunner of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. I don't know how great I am, but I appreciate the compliment very much. Uh, rate us, review us, follow us wherever you can. Um, that is very helpful. All right, up next, Nick Ackridge. We'll get more into Daniel Jones, Lamar Jackson, a lot of the other quarterback stuff, including a lot of Washington quarterback stuff. That's next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, jumping on with us right now is Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. Nick is one of my uh, favorite guests here over the last couple of years. Does a great job for PFF as a senior data analyst, but really knows our team here, Washington. Um, And he's been looking at the draft. I want to get into some of that. You can follow Nick, by the way, on Twitter at PFF underscore Nick Ackridge. Ackridge spelled A-K-R-I. D-G-E. Before we get to the Indy Combine and some of your takeaways specific to the quarterbacks, um, what did you think of the Daniel Jones deal in New York? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of what you have to pay, you know, middle-of-the-road quarterbacks now. I mean, we saw Geno Smith and now Daniel Jones obviously get paid, and it looks like a massive number, um, but I was kind of like – reading up on it. I think they can get out of it after like two years or so. So if he's terrible in two years, you just 
kind of get out of it. And I don't think they have to eat much uh, money, but the first year cap hit is 19 million. And that kind of seems about right with, you know, what you're kind of paying for with middle of the road quarterback play. And that's kind of where he's been his career. I know a lot of us kind of really like to make fun of Daniel Jones and the Giants, but he's kind of been a very average quarterback. Um, last year, he, they really kind of used his legs and he's very sneaky athletic. I know a lot of, you know, white quarterbacks get that tag, but uh, he was very, very good in the run game. Um, just a little safe in the passing game. And you kind of, kind of tell from their offense last year, but no, I think it's kind of what you had to pay um, Daniel Jones and that sort of, sort of quarterback play. When should we all as football fans and those of us that really watch the sport closely, um, when do we, do we have to readjust when we give up on a quarterback? Yes. I think you do. Every time these quarterbacks get drafted, it, it is so much dependent on their situation. And we've seen that very clear here in Washington, but it's so, so dependent on the situation. Patrick Mahomes would not be Patrick Mahomes if he wasn't put into uh, drafted by the Chiefs, able to sit behind someone like Alex Smith, learn from someone like Andy Reid, and now Eric Bieniemy. And th- he, that doesn't happen if he goes to like the Bears and has to start right away. It's just not, you know, the the situation is is so so key for these guys, and you can kind of tell with some of them, like the Trevor Lawrence situation last year. I think is a perfect example. A lot of people wanted to give up and say instantly he's a bust, but. Urban Myers, your head coach, and, and that team was absolutely awful. But you could still see from the quarterback position that he was playing it at a relatively high level given everything around him. And then you saw it this year how they made the playoffs and, and he looked incredible. Um, so, yeah, you, you can kind of tell right away with some of these quarterbacks, like if they have it or if they don't have it. I think Josh Allen is one of those guys that just kind of really looked terrible his first three years and just instantly kind of clicked and turned the corner, but that's a very rare thing. You can usually you usually tell pretty early on when you should kind of, you know, give up on, on somebody. But Daniel Jones was always kind of shown to be right in the middle. Like, he, he had some plays were, that were really great, and for whatever reason, every time he played Washington, he looked incredible. But he was always just kind of a middle-of-the-road guy, and I think the Giants kind of knew that. And they're still a young team. They're, they're still rebuilding. Obviously, they took a huge step this past year. Um, and I think Jones is kind of a, a good quarterback for them to just kind of, you know, see what he can do as that, that middle of the road guy and see what you can kind of build around him and, and maybe make a run. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, it's interesting because Daniel Jones is, is a, a perfect guy to, to have this conversation about because six months ago, I mean, they brought in Tyrod Taylor because, you know, Dable wasn't sure. Kafka wasn't sure. Uh, in fact, you know, if you were reading some of the stuff preseason, a lot of the Giants reporters said they predicted that Tyrod Taylor would end up playing. I mean, they didn't pick up his fifth-year option, and the chances that they were going to extend him or or be forced to franchise him if it came to that, you know, before this season started, were a lot less than 50-50. You know, probably like a, a one-in-three chance that that was going to happen. And then all of a sudden he gets, you know, the most the best coaching staff he's had, the best offensive coordinator slash head coach he's had. I mean, this is a guy that went through Shermer and the Joe Judge uh, disaster. Um, he still had no weapons whatsoever. 
And, you know, his season wasn't like super spectacular as a passer, you know, uh, throwing for 3,205 yards and just 15 touchdowns. I read this, this stat this morning, Nick. He's the only quarterback in the last three years for all three years as a starter to throw for less touchdowns than games as the number one guy going in to the season. He threw 15 touchdowns this year, 10 in 2021, and 11 in 2020. Not only that, he reduced his turnover issue completely. That was one of the biggest issues with Jones, is that he was a turnover machine. Five five interceptions, one lost fumble on the season. So why, the way you talked, and I think the way a lot of people talk, and I think um, maybe even I've sort of referred to it this way, that we've already seen what he can be, and maybe that was this past season. He's still kind of a middling, middle of the road, you know, maybe in that 14 to 18 range, 14 in a good season, 18 in a not so good season. Why isn't his ceiling higher for a guy with size, with arm strength, and with incredible mobility? Now that he's matched with a good coach, kind of like you said with Mahomes. I'm not saying he is Mahomes. And by the way, I think Mahomes could have been drafted by somebody else and still been really good. But I understand you know, your point of being in the perfect yeah. situation. But why can't Daniel Jones take it to the next level and become a top 10, you know, legit franchise quarterback? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting point. But I, I think we've kind of seen it throughout these past years is when it comes to just pure passer when it comes to Daniel Jones is just a pure passer sitting in the pocket he struggles to kind of quickly get through his progressions his reads and you know that could that could do a lot with how many times he's had to switch offenses but that was kind of a huge thing and why his turnovers were were down a bit and now for 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 us for PFF we still charted him with 21 turnover worthy plays oh you did it might not have shown up in the actual yeah Yeah. it might not have shown up in the actual box score but he was still in the top 10 of turnover worthy plays got it um, so just defenses Fair. weren't really capitalizing on it as much, but he did. That was definitely lower than what he's had in, in previous years. He was always like near the top when it came to turnover worthy plays. But when you when they were able to move him out of the pocket, get him involved in the run game, it just made things easier for him. And it, it's kind of something that a lot of offenses are doing now with these younger quarterbacks who have this athletic side to them, make things easier for him. And the floor for these guys is just a crazy athletic, you know, um, quarterback that can kind of turn into a runner. And you had these the, the, that dual threat option back there, and that's a that's a high floor to basically have. Like we saw with Justin Fields and now Daniel Jones, they might not be the greatest passers right now, but their floor is so high because of what they can add to the running game, and that's kind of what they they did last year. They realized how good he was in the run game, um, and it's what kind of kept that offense afloat. And it still was not a great offense. I mean, their defense was very good, but you know he he's just kind of that middle of the road quarterback and. You know, it's going to take a lot from him to kind of, you know, get to a spot mentally where he can progress quickly and work within the pocket. And that was just kind of his his big issue these past couple of years. He was too slow, and with <clears throat> with that offensive line, he needed to be quicker mentally to kind of know when he needs to get out of the pocket um, and when he can stay in and stuff like that. And that's what kind of led to the 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 fumbles and all the sacks he took over the, the past couple of years. I mean, and he's had nothing around him. Um, he's had major oh, offensive line issues. Yeah. He's had, uh, you know, major receiver issues. Um, I mean, I guess he did have, uh, you know, Evan Ingram with him, and Ingram's excelled 
uh, obviously in Jacksonville. Um, but Barkley's been it. So um, it would be interesting to see Daniel Jones with the same good, solid coaching staff, uh, which you're going to get with Dable and company here for you know another few years, and then put some weapons around him and see what happens. And you know the the Jones conversation is a bit of a segue into the Lamar Jackson conversation because I agree with you. Uh, I don't you know I don't think I've ever been wowed by Daniel Jones hanging in the pocket on third and nine and making you know a, a really good play. Now playing off schedule, he's been outstanding. But I think we would say the same thing about Lamar Jackson. And even though he had that one season, the MVP season, in which he threw for 36 touchdowns, but he still only threw for 3,100 yards that year. And I think the one criticism of, of Lamar Jackson, other than availability, injury uh, availability, would be, you know, can he, in a big game in January, deliver from the pocket if it comes to that? And the answer so far has been... Not really sure, but it certainly is. It, it certainly isn't a definitive yes at this point. No, I mean it's it's a fair question for him. I, I think you also kind of have to look at his situation and that wide receiver core in Baltimore True. for years now has been completely non-existent, and it's a huge, huge run-heavy offense. And that's just kind of the that, that's not just Lamar Jackson; it's also the play caller that we've seen. I mean, he is. One of the best run game coordinators, Greg Roman. the most unique run game I've ever really seen, Greg Roman, yeah. And I think that's just kind of not really held him back, but I think you can see him work within a pocket. I think he's you know, I think he's up there with, with some of the best you know, pure quarterbacks. There's a lot of plays that you can really see him work through progressions and know what the defense is showing in pre and post snap. And I, I think he can be a very successful quarterback if you just let him stay in the pocket. Um, and then you just add the the running ability and he's you know, one of the best athletes on the field every time he steps on there. So I think I think that he has the ability to. Now, these past couple of years, we've seen injury issues. Um, his first two years, there weren't really injury problems, but these past few years, kind of once the season gets down to the end, there's, there's these injury concerns. Um, but, yeah, 25-year-old former MVP, I, I think, it, still, the sky's the limit still with his potential. Let me net out what I think um, of the Lamar Jackson situation, and then I want uh, your your opinion on it. Number one is, I think this comparison with Daniel Jones yesterday from a lot of different places was stupid. I, I think it's in a total apples and oranges. Um, Daniel Jones was already their player. Um, they don't have to... Um, I, I'm try- I, let, me, let me be clear on this. I'm talking about the reaction. like The reaction immediately on Lamar Jackson's non-exclusive franchise tag, which I thought it was going to be an exclusive tag I was surprised by it was reporting that Atlanta and Carolina and Miami and even Washington are not interested like all of a sudden there isn't that market that maybe he thinks he he has and a lot of people said well and then Daniel Jones gets this big contract well Daniel Jones okay isn't going to require two first rounders from another team a b the the amount of guaranteed money appears to be in the 80 to 90 million dollar range all right, the the quarterback yeah. in Baltimore wants nearly two and a half times that in guaranteed money. Um, so it's it's not the same at all. Um, and by the way, he'll end up. You know, people are looking at his thirty two point five on the franchise tag, non exclusive tag, and Daniel Jones is at forty. Remember that forty a year. 
Look at the guaranteed money, people. We've learned enough over the years, haven't we, to say these numbers are inflated on the aggregate totals of contracts and years, et cetera. It's the guaranteed money you want to look at. It's 80 to 90 million guaranteed. But the Ravens offered him 250 and 133 million in guaranteed money, and he turned it down before the season started. By the way, I think where this is headed is I think it's going to turn out that Baltimore was a bit shrewd, realized there wouldn't be an overwhelming market for him um, because of the contract more than anything else, in my opinion. Um, And they're going to play him on the non-exclusive tag at 32.5 and then figure it out later, even though I think really the best case for him maybe would be for somebody to step up like – uh, and, and structure a deal similar to the one that Kirk had in Minnesota. You know, I know the Jets offered a lot more money, but he got the first totally guaranteed contract in NFL history, three years, $84 million. Um, obviously, the numbers would be much bigger. If, if he got something like three years and, you know, approaching $150 million, it would be the guaranteed money that you know perhaps is less than what he's looking for but more what a team is looking to give and maybe he gives up on years for a high AAV and 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 something close to guaranteed. I don't know, but I think Baltimore is going to benefit from him essentially being able to test the market. What do you think? Yeah, no, I it's, it was so weird that the second we kind of heard the Lamar Jackson situation and all of these teams are instantly out on it, it was it's a little odd to hear that considering they were all just kind of in on the Deshaun Watson situation the past year. But Atlanta, I really get into yeah. that. I think, yeah, Atlanta especially, it's just very strange. Um, but I, I think, like you said, obviously the guaranteed number is, is the biggest thing, and he's asking for basically a Deshaun Watson contract, and no other owner wants to give him that because then – that kind of sets a precedent that, hey, maybe these guys can get, you know, these $200 million guaranteed contracts, these, these top quarterbacks. Um, I think they will eventually kind of meet at, the, at a middle point. I think he stays with Baltimore. Um, I was kind of shocked that uh, they went on the, the non-exclusive tag. Um, but I, it's just such an interesting situation. I, like, I, I kind of completely agree with you. I think he will be back at Baltimore play this next year on that $32 million, like you said. Um, and they'll eventually kind of meet in the middle. I just don't know if he's going to budge off of what Sean Watson got because I, I think he's kind of proven that he, he can be a better quarterback, better player in the NFL than, than the shop. He's a former MVP. I think he's not really going to budge from, from that number, and it'll just be interesting to see. If we hadn't gone through, as football fans, witnessing the last two years of Deshaun Watson's life, and we were just judging on his 2017, 2018, 2019, um, and 2020 season, um, his first four in the league. And, uh, and, and Watson and Jackson were both up for unrestricted free agency. Who would you prefer signing, Jackson or Watson, without all of the, you know, obviously baggage that he's got over the last year and a half to two years? I think if we're just looking at 2020, basically when Watson played his last kind of his full season, I, I think I would lean to Sean Watson. Me too. Um, I, it's tough. I mean, I don't think you'd go wrong either way, but I think I would lean to Sean Watson just because what he did in a, a terrible Texans organization was, was extremely impressive. And, and yeah, I think I would lean Watson just purely based on what we saw before 
Yeah, I want to put the Watson of the six games at the end of this past year out of my mind, except for, by the way, the, yeah. the, the three drives that he put together against Washington, which were, were really the three best drives of his six-game run at the end. I'm, I'm going to chalk it up to you know a weird situation coming in at the end, having not played for a year and a half, et cetera. But if I think back to what I thought of Deshaun Watson before all the you know massage happy ending uh, stuff came out, I thought Deshaun Watson was right on the edge of an elite quarterback, like you know top six yeah. or seven in the league. And I don't think I felt that way about Jackson. I didn't think Jackson was much lower than that, but I think I would have taken Watson. I I don't know what I'm getting in the person Watson now. And I do think, you know, Lamar Jackson has proven to be an incredible teammate and beloved teammate, uh, you know, in the, in, and by the way, beloved by everybody in the organization for the last um, few years. But I, I just think Watson at, at his best a few years ago was better than, than Jackson. Yeah, no, I think you could have made a case after the 2020 season that he was a top five quarterback. I don't think anyone really – kind of scoff at that he in 2020 i'm just looking it up now he had a 92.5 overall grade for us and that was you know the third wow. best behind um brady and rogers so i yeah i think those kind of proves that he was an elite elite quarterback at that point yeah the 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 interesting thing about that season and many people pointed it out to me especially callers on the radio show is they were horrible that year um, Houston was, yeah. and you know, and even though he was great, the team was horrible. So she and how can an elite quarterback go three and thirteen or whatever they went that year? I forget exactly what their record was. It was something like that. Um, and I, that's a fair point, but that organization was in complete and utter turmoil. I mean, it was it was a yeah. major problem uh, organization at that point. All right, um, before we get to Indy Combine stuff. Let's just say that Aaron Rodgers does end up in New York and he's playing with the Jets. Do you consider them to be a Super Bowl contender? I don't know about Super Bowl contender, just because the AFC is completely stacked. But I, I do think they'd make the playoffs. Um, I think they, they would challenge the Bills for, for the division. I just don't know. Aaron Rodgers was not great last year um, in terms of, you know, Aaron Rodgers. But I think he would obviously be the best quarterback the Jets have had in a very, very long time. And I think he would kind of easily get them to the playoffs. I just don't know if that team can kind of get through the Chiefs, the Bills, and now the even the, the Jaguars coming up and the Chargers and all of these other great teams that are now coming up. I don't know if they would be in Super Bowl contenders, but I think they would definitely be in the playoffs and you know, kind of in the shot to maybe get one or two wins. Yeah, I talked about this yesterday. Um my bookie who sponsors this podcast uh, has them now as the fourth pick to win the AFC championship behind, obviously, Kansas City, Buffalo, and Cincinnati, just on the possibility um, that he's going to end up in New York. And by the way, if people listened to the show yesterday, they were at plus 1150 or wherever they were. They're at plus 910 now. So they are moving up the board. And I, I made the case, Nick, that if Washington acquired Aaron Rodgers, which we know isn't really possible because they're just not spending any money and making any big deals, we don't think, um, that Washington could have been as high as the third pick in the NFC behind San Francisco and Philadelphia to win the NFC championship. With, because I view the Jets and Washington's rosters and situations as very similar. 
because of yep. the good young defense, really good playmakers, and just – you know, Washington's got some O-line issues, et cetera, but really it's been quarterback play that's been the biggest problem. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Washington and, and the Jets were kind of in, like you said, a very, very similar situation. And the only difference between the two is that is the conferences. Like I for, even forgot to mention Cincy, which just makes the AFC incredible. Like you said, in the NFC, it's, it's literally San Francisco and it's Philly and maybe the Cowboys, but we all kind of know what happens when, when that gets into the, the playoffs. But, yeah, I think obviously if he came here, that'd be a dream. But like you said, I don't think it's going to happen. But he would definitely push them to you know the top tier of NFC teams. All right, let's get to the Indy Combine, which I will confess I didn't really watch any of it, but I let I read a lot of the write ups. <laughs> but I don't watch it usually. Um, but you and I have talked about this particular person um, multiple times in the past. Uh, in fact, I think the last time I talked to you, you had just reviewed his film and were high on him. I loved Anthony Richardson earlier in the year, and I talked about him a lot on the show. Um, and then, you know, and then as you watched him, I realized he was majorly flawed um, as a pocket passer. Um, in particular with footwork and accuracy issues. But he blew away the combine like nobody has at that position ever. So my first question to you is, what's what's the latest he goes in the first round? Like, do you see him getting out of the top five, top ten? No. I think top ten is, is, 10 is his absolute floor. Uh, there's a lot of people that love the combine like you. I don't really watch the combine. I don't think it adds much. Um, there's some important measurements and metrics that you can take from it. Um, but I don't think it really adds any, if you watch Anthony Richardson, you knew he was going to blow away the combine. It's right. just the athlete he is. That doesn't really change anything from my evaluation at all. Um, but like you said, his work within the pocket is good. Like, I think I said this on the last time I was on here is he does all the hard stuff really, really well when it comes to pocket manipulation, knowing where to go with the ball, when to get it out when to run, when to stay within the pocket. And then it just kind of comes down to the end where it's like his footwork's a mess and the accuracy just goes everywhere. I, but I think all of that stuff is is kind of an easier fix for some of the better quarterback coaches and, and offensive coordinators and stuff like that. I think a lot of it is just kind of he thinks his arm is – and he knows his arm is so good that he can just kind of get away with lazy-ish footwork um, and he can still fire the ball 60 yards from basically a flat stand to it. But I think all of that is, is kind of fixable. But a lot of things that you see with Anthony Richardson, you don't see from these, you know, crazy athletic quarterbacks that, you know, people just think are just completely a toolsy type of quarterback and you have to work from the ground up. Um, he is a very, very smart quarterback. You can see it from the way he plays, uh, the way he stays within the pocket and the way he just kind of manipulates the pocket and stuff like that. So I think 10 is his absolute floor. Um, obviously there were talks about maybe if he got to 16, what would Washington do? I don't think there's any chance he gets there. Um, but yeah, I think it kind of four. Um, the, the, I've seen a bunch of mocks now, him, you know, going as high as one, you know, uh, three, mm-hmm. four with the Raiders trading, whatever. Um, this is one of those, and, and I talked about it yesterday, and I've talked about it a lot over the years. This is one where I think it's always hard for us, including probably you guys as well at PFF, in that 
The most important part of the evaluation of Anthony Richardson is what the coaches probably did in interviews with Richardson in Indianapolis, what they're doing behind the scenes and due diligence on Anthony Richardson, talking to his coaches, talking to teammates, finding out about him and his family and what kind of, you know, how coachable he will be, how much he loves ball, you know, uh, all of that stuff. And that's the stuff that we don't know. You're a big college football fan. I am. And we watch every Saturday. Saturday and we have these ideas, but we're missing a big chunk of how these guys are being evaluated. So all we're looking at is, you know, what we think we know about football and how it projects to the next level. Um, that that makes at this position in particular, it's so important uh, to know yeah. what you're getting because the investment ends up being so much larger, um, and obviously the, the amount of times he touches the ball and the you know leadership, all that stuff. But what have we heard about Anthony Richardson with respect to that? Have you followed that part of it at all? What do we know about him and what they're saying about him? No, I. Like you said, I think if I was able to just kind of be a fly on the wall in all of these conversations that he has with teams, I think it would change a lot of my evaluations from the past or, or my current evaluations. Just because, like you said, that's a huge, huge part of it is the mental side of the game. And does he know what he's talking about? Does he know what he messed up on? Does he know where he should have gone or what he did and stuff like that? And I, I think I, I haven't heard anything bad about it. Um, you know, a lot of times you just kind of see the, the media guys just kind of pushing these guys up. And we heard it a lot with Malik Willis last year. and We, we kind of saw how that turned out. But I haven't heard anything bad about him. I, but, you know, there, there's really not much coming out from that point. But I, I would just love to be a fly on the wall and kind of listen to what they talk about or how they go through what how they played last year. So I saw you tweet out, and this looks like it was before the end of the Combine. So I don't know if there's been an update to it, but – Give everybody your – you've got a top six here on quarterbacks in the draft. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so I had Bryce Young first, uh, Richardson second, Shroud third, Levis fourth, Tanner McKee from Stanford fifth, and then Hendon Hooker sixth. That, that's the top six. That's the only six that I've watched. I don't think there's anybody else that would really kind of, you know – step in front of them but yeah that's the, that's the top six I have I I still think Bryce Young I agree with you that he's number one overall but did the expected by the way it was not a surprise that he's short and slight does what what level of worry should a team have that Bryce Young's tiny yeah I, it's the only thing that's stopping me from giving him one of the highest rates I've given since Trevor Lawrence and I haven't done this for too many years but I think he's the smartest quarterback that I've evaluated in an extremely long time. The only thing that's stopping me from saying he's a surefire number one pick, he's going to be an elite quarterback, is, is his size. Um, but we saw him play in, a, in an SEC schedule. We saw him, as a Tennessee fan, I saw him get absolutely killed by Tennessee's defensive line, and that Alabama O-line last year was not good. No, And he kept getting killed. He, he kept getting right back up, never left that game. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is a bit overblown, but – He's going to be an outlier. I mean, we, we've seen smaller quarterbacks now get drafted, and we've seen a Kyler Murray, but Kyler Murray was a lot bigger. I mean, Bryce Young did everything in his power just to get over 200 pounds. <laughs> so he probably drank a lot of water the, the, the day and the night before. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, like I said, that's the only thing that's really stopping me from saying he's the elite of the elite. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, from the pocket, his accuracy, his timing, his anticipation, his – 
He's clearly incredibly bright and two steps ahead of everybody. Then he's just magical as a as a play extender. Um, uh, there's just so much about him that I love. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely naive on this, but I think in this day and age, I'm just not that worried about his size with the way they protect quarterbacks. And, you know, I think probably a West Coast, you know, scheme probably would work incredibly well with him. Like to see somebody like him with Sean Payton in Denver, that would have been a magical combination because there's a lot of breeze in him. So you have Richardson ahead of Stroud. Um, I know, you know, you've, you've expressed why you like Richardson and, you know, I've actually referenced what you said maybe the last time or two times ago you were on that, you know, the athleticism's great, um, and, and, and obvious, but maybe what's subtle about him is he's got incredibly fast processing speed and he really makes the right reads and yes, the footwork and the accuracy, et cetera, but CJ Stroud, who I was down on. But that game against Georgia made me think twice. Um, it didn't make you think enough to put him at number two. Why? I just think that we've heard it a lot with, with Ohio State quarterbacks. I think he was just a tick slower than I would like you know, my, my quarterbacks to be when it came to processing. And he had two absolute mammoths at left and right tackle. And he had a ton of time in the pocket. And I think, I think his floor is very high. I just don't think his ceiling is up there with someone like a Richardson or even a Bryce Young. Um, but he's, he's extremely accurate, some of the best ball placement uh, among these, these, these top quarterbacks. And he, he knows what he's doing. He knows where to go with the ball. It's just for me, I, there were too many instances where he knew where he should go with the ball. He was just a little late with it. Um, and a lot of times he, he doesn't really – like he has the arm strength, but he doesn't really use it as much as I would like him to, if that makes sense. He doesn't really laser balls in there. He kind of floats balls every now and again, and especially on these outbreaking routes, it's kind of a problem. And the combine, he looked good from what I saw. Um, but yeah, I think he's a very smart quarterback, accurate quarterback. I just don't think that he is really quick enough in, in the processing point to kind of put him up there with the top tier. And I think he can be. I just, for whatever reason, I saw way too many instances of him just knowing where to go with it, looking at it, and then just kind of waiting, hesitating, a couple passes of the ball, little hitches. So that's the only thing that's really kind of stopping me from putting him in that, in that top two. But I think he does have a, a higher floor than, than most quarterbacks. The guy that um, – and I think we've talked about him before, but Will Levis is obviously among the four that are being considered as first-round mm-hmm. picks. I just thought that he – and I forget if we've talked about this together or if I've talked to somebody else about it. I thought there were games when, when I watched him where he did not deal with pressure well, that he would throw the ball to a, to, to the other team, and I'd be like, well, what were you even looking at? Um, there were a couple of games. like they, they lost to Vanderbilt. He had a terrible interception, and he was terrible in his accuracy. Um, and I think he can really throw the football. And by the way, I think he really looks the part. Like He looks like an NFL pocket-passing quarterback. By the way, he's mobile, too. I mean, Levis can move if yeah. you haven't watched him um, and is a big dude. But I just thought decision-making, I was like, man. And that's in a pro-style offense at Kentucky with a, with a team that has always been defensive first under Stoops, um, but you've got Levis fourth. What do you think of him? By the way, do you think of him as a first-rounder? I wouldn't take him in the first round um, just because I, I think these top three are just kind of a step above the rest of them. Um, I wouldn't really take him in the first round. I could see maybe you know late first, um, early second, 
But if he came out last year, I think he would have been my, my number one quarterback, just kind of looking at the grades I gave him. I think he would have, but it was a very um, rough quarterback class last year. Uh, he's just, like you said, the pro-style offense, it's always something that's talked about as a pro for him. But even if, if you play in a pro-style offense and you're not good, I, I don't see that as much of a, a pro. I mean, yes, you've played in a pro-style offense, but if you're not great in that offense, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, he did have to switch coordinators this, this past year, and his offensive line was terrible, lost some weapons. Um, so there's a lot of excuses that you can make for him, and they're valid excuses. I just think that, like you said, he was the Tennessee game was one of the well, worst quarterback games I've ever really seen. Um, again, against a not a good mode. defensive team, too. Let's be fair. Mm-hmm. I know no. this is your team, but they couldn't stop most teams. <laughs> no, they could not. Uh, he had a grade in, in the 30s, and I think it was one of – it was just, it was tough. I, it doesn't make much sense to me because even when he had clean pockets, it was just kind of everything was a bit slow. Um, he was kind of slow to, to get through where he needed to to get. He was didn't really pick up on one defense we were doing. It. One of the examples that I think I'm going to post about later is where they had, a team had five defensive linemen down, two edge rushers, and they had a blitz sent from one side, which usually means that that other edge rusher is going to drop off. But he didn't really understand that. He still threw into where that edge rusher is dropping off, and he gets completely blindsided from the other side. He didn't understand where his hot route was. It's these little sort of things that he just wasn't really picking up on. And when you have a bad offensive line, these are the the areas where you have to be your best at. And it was just those kind of subtle things where he just doesn't really understand where blitzes are coming from, how coverages are really being presented. And that's kind of the, the point that, really, really sticks with me and why I wouldn't take him in the first round. And like you said, yes, he looks the part. Arm strength is up there. Athleticism is up there. And I think his accuracy is fine at times. Um, it's not going to be, you know, a top tier like a CJ Stroud or even a Bryce Young. But you know, the arm is, is, you can make an arm, it is the best in the class. It's up there with Anthony Richardson. Um, but the rest of it is just kind of, it's just kind of rough. All right, give me other quarterbacks that you think, um, you know, day two, day three that you you like. You mentioned Tanner McKee um, from uh, from Stanford. You mentioned your guy Hendon Hooker, obviously coming off the ACL uh, that he had against South Carolina. Um, do you consider these guys to be f- potential, you know, uh, future starters in the NFL, second, third, fourth round guys? Where do you have them? Yeah, I think Tanner McKee is, is literally just Davis Mills reincarnated. I think the the Stanford quarterbacks, they're all the same person, basically. And they just keep producing these guys, you know, these tall pocket-passing quarterbacks that are very good at that, that spot, but they're not going to really offer much. So I think someone like Tanner McKee is pretty much a Davis Mills. And Davis Mills is never really going to be, you know, a top-tier quarterback, but he's the type of guy who can be a backup and a spot starter. Um, so I think that's kind of where Tanner McKee's, Ceiling really is. Um, I think he's, you know, a quick enough processor. And that Stanford offense was weird. I think they finally really got with the times of 2022 and 2023 and started including RPOs. And they went heavy, heavy RPO and screen game. And it's just not really where he excelled. Um, I think some of his best plays were in the, the intermediate to, to deep range throws. Um, but they went heavy with RPO style. And he wasn't much of a threat to run it. So it was just kind of a, a weird offense. And you know, maybe that kind of held back some of my evaluation and we can see how he does in, an, in a better offense. But you know, I think Tanner McKee is a type of guy that can, you know, could be a spot starter and a career backup in the NFL. And Hendon Hooker, it's tough for me. 
like you mentioned, I'm a dire Tennessee fan. I love everything he did for Tennessee. Um, it was an incredible year this past year. But he, he's 25, coming off a torn ACL. That offense does not provide much in terms of what he can do going forward. Um, everything in that offense was, was really predetermined. It just kind of based on alignment, based on what the defense was showing. And if that wasn't open, he's just he's just taken off to run. Um, heavy, heavy RPO style uh, offense was the beneficiary of a lot of busted coverages just because of that offense. So it pains me to say it, but I don't see much in Hennon Hooker. Um, I think maybe you're looking at hopefully the best case scenario for him as a, as a career backup. Um, but yeah, 25 years old already coming off an ACL does not help him at all. So that's just kind of where I have him as, as much as it hurts me to say it. Have you looked at anybody else? No, like I said, there's not many other players that really kind of stand out to me as someone who can maybe make that jump. And I made this mistake last year with Brock Purdy, so maybe I'm going to be wrong again. Um, but maybe you kind of look at a guy like Aiden O'Connell from Purdue. And uh, that was I one I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah, I think Brock Purdy kind of maybe, not really set a new precedent, but kind of showed that maybe you should start looking more at these these quarterbacks that have played a you lot. Know, four or five years. And Aiden, yeah, Aiden O'Connell is, is someone who's done that. He's played a lot with Purdue. DTR um, also at UCLA. Yeah, so I, I think those are maybe some guys that you could look in later rounds. That I think those would be the type of players that I would look at. Somebody who's played four or five years who knows what they're doing and has a higher floor than most. Um, Jake Hayner kind of interests exactly. me from Fresno State. Yep. Um, athletic a little bit. But, yeah, those are just the type of guys that I would look at. Even really Stetson Bennett, I, I think he's another guy that, that's played a decent amount, played with some really good talent. I, I think his floor is going to be higher than most. But I think those are the type of guys that you can really look at. Yeah, I think I, I was going to ask you about the, the – you, you mentioned two of them. I was going to ask you about Hayner uh, and O'Connell if you had looked at them. And I think Dorian Thompson-Robinson, a DTR from UCLA, also is an interesting guy. Like you said, has played a lot of football you know, at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've seen some of that in recent years when you've played as much as Brock Purdy has. Um, the adjustment isn't as great. Uh, all right, two more for, um, for Nick. Uh, Actually, one more. I got one more for you. So right now, on March 8th, give me the quarterbacks that you would like to see, not who you think we'll see, who you'd like to see, that are reasonable, within reason, understanding sort of their mindset here in the offseason, that you'd like to see on the training camp roster. Now, are you talking about free agents and draft kind of included? Yes, so the, the, okay. there are three. Um, there are three guys at least in the quarterback room, and you know one of them more right. likely than not is going to be kind of a veteran guy. Um, right. More likely than not. So it's Sam Howell, and give me two more. Yeah. So I've always kind of thought that they would go Sam Howell, and then like you said, a veteran guy. So someone like maybe like an Andy Dalton or a Jacoby Brissett, someone like that that can kind of come in and just kind of you know be a nice mentor for Sam Howell. And if Howell is very very bad can step up and you won't lose much of a step with, with a guy like that. Andy Dalton last year was surprisingly really good with the Saints um, in kind of, you know, a weird situation. And Jacoby Brissett was also the same. He, those are two guys that I would really like to see. Um, he, they might even push for quarterback one spot the way they played last well, year. Well, um, you but, only get a choice of one because you're not going to sign both of them. Which one would you prefer? Yeah. I think I would prefer Brissett. I think we've seen him over these past couple of years kind of really be 
a pretty solid quarterback when he's had to step in. Um, and then I would take somebody in like the, the fifth, sixth round that you can hopefully kind of develop, keep on the practice squad. Um, so someone like, I think I would go with Aiden O'Connell, um, someone who, who's played a lot of football and has kind of really shown some flashes at times. Um, I mean, I, I would just from the thing that's just sticking in my head, like it from a, um, since I'm a Tennessee fan, the Purdue versus Tennessee bowl game last year, yeah. when it was just kind of a crazy back and forth offense. Crazy game. Yeah. Really, really impressive um, in that one. So I think someone like that is what I would go with. But I've always kind of been of the mindset that it's going to be, um, like you said, a veteran, and then they draft someone late. Uh, I think that's just kind of how they go in with it and kind of give Howell the quote-unquote QB1 um, but they just kind of let it play out in training camp too, or where they go from there. Uh, I just pulled up the box score because that was one of the most exciting bowl games in recent years. Purdue won it forty-eight yeah. forty-five in overtime. O'Connell threw for five hundred. Yeah, remind me about the Purdue winning. <laughs> <laughs> O'Connell threw for five hundred and thirty-four yards, five touchdowns, three picks. Hooker threw for three seventy-eight and five touchdowns. So they combined yeah. for. Uh, 912 yards passing and 10 touchdowns. Pretty good in that game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about Matt Ryan? Whew. If you were to ask me last year, I, I would have been high. I thought I was, I thought Matt Ryan would have been the better option than Carson. Me Martin too. Based on the year prior. Yeah. Um, but after what I saw with, with the Colts, I, I don't know. I, he looks really, really bad in that Colts. Uh, Colts offense and, and their <laughs> offensive line is, was not as great when it came to pass protecting with him. Um, but I would be intrigued. I just, I don't know how willing he would be to kind of be a backup right now. I, I don't know if what he, his mindset really is, but I, I mean, I would be intrigued. I don't know if I would really put him above the Brissette or Dalton based solely on what we saw last year. But if you were to ask me, Two years ago, I would have been all in on it. I don't know what the PFF ranking was for him last year, but he had some games that were Matt Ryan-esque. I mean, he had a game against Jacksonville where he was 42 of 58. I looked this up this morning, and I remember the game for 389 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, He had a game in the opener when they blew the lead and Houston came back, a bad Houston team came back and tied them, where he threw for like 352 and I think threw, you know, they completed 70% roughly of his passes. Um, I, the only reason I brought it up is I had a guest on this morning, this this longtime NFL uh, r- reporter out of uh, out of Boston, who said he's got Matt Ryan to Washington because he said Ron Rivera and Matt Ryan have had you know a decent relationship over the years, and I I guess the reason is they were just in the same division and they played some big games against one another, Carolina, you know, New Orleans, Atlanta during those years, but. Um, Matt Ryan, mentor, great locker room guy, incredibly smart. The thing is, though, if you – I like Dalton, too, and I thought Dalton was good last year. If you bring in Dalton, if you bring in Brissett, maybe if you bring in Ryan, I mean, are you more tempted to just start them at the beginning of the year if Sam Howell is a little bit slower developing than you like and then you don't get Sam Howell for 17 games, which – you know, you, you, I think a lot of people would like to see. I'd actually like to see him compete for a playoff spot with much better quarterback play because the roster is pretty good. Um, and by the way, I think yeah. Dalton would be an upgrade. I think Brissett would be an upgrade. I think maybe Matt Ryan. I don't know what his physical status is, but I think Matt Ryan would probably be an upgrade over what they've had here in recent years. No, I mean, I completely agree. I, I think I've said multiple times how much of – 
how much how against uh, the Carson Wentz move I was last year. I think Carson is just really not there when it comes to the mental side of quarterback play. And like I said, two years ago, if you told me Matt Ryan, I would have been all for it. Um, no, the, the games you mentioned were, were good. He did have some kind of impressive games. I think what really stuck out is those first five or six games for, for Ryan last year with the Colts were just really, really bad. He did start to kind of turn a corner um, towards the end of the year. Uh, they obviously benched him, but th- they went back to him at times. And he was pretty decent. Um, but like you said, I think if he did come to Washington, I think he could push for that that QB1 job. And I know a lot of fans want to see Sam Howell, but we've only seen one game from him. So yeah. um, if you're just kind of going off that one game, I, I think it'll be tough to kind of say, let's go with Howell and keep someone like Ryan on the bench. Yeah, it's one of those things, Nick, where it's like, okay, great. Um, there are a lot of people that saw what they needed to see in that one game. And, you know, they're going back to where, you know, he should have been drafted, you know, uh, based on the early projections and Washington got a steal and they've been saying nice things. But the possibility exists that he can't do it, people. Like, the, it's a strong possibility. Like, the, the, the chances yeah. of him not being able to do it are greater than him being able to turn into the franchise quarterback. And by the way, they're not even close in terms of the odds going in. So if he yeah. if he's not the guy and everybody realizes it early on, it'd be better for next year anyway, unless you're just, you know, openly – uh, in favor of going two and fifteen and getting Caleb Williams, which you know I I completely would buy into as well. But if you want to be competitive next year, and Ron Rivera wants to be competitive, I would think they got to sign somebody like Dalton Brissett. You know that's got they got to have a legitimate starting NFL quarterback. You know back half of the starting NFL quarterbacks, um, but something that they haven't had here in recent years that can run an offense, yeah. can make the throws, and can take advantage of a team that's and a roster that's not that bad. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's just such it's a weird spot that this team is in, yeah. in, a, in a, a very weak NFC, because they have one of the best rosters in the NFC if you're taking out just the quarterback position. They have, it's up there with, with some of the best rosters. Obviously, that offensive line needs a bit of work. You could use some secondary depth, but... It's a very, very solid roster, and you're just waiting for that quarterback. We've been waiting for that quarterback forever. And if you do see Sam Howell struggling, I don't see why they would kind of wait to put someone in that you know they know can operate the offense at a high level. And I think that's what they were hoping for with Wentz. I think it was a weird choice to go with someone like Wentz. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just such a weird spot that they're in because of how kind of weak the NFC really is. If expense weren't an issue, if they were, you know, their old, old selves, I would say go after Aaron Rodgers, go after Lamar Jackson, swing big. Um, I like I was in favor of swinging big last year. I would have been wrong about Russell Wilson. I was in favor of it the year before with yeah. Matt Stafford and Deshaun Watson when it when when it was obvious that he became available before all the stuff. Um, it would also lead me to this, which I've talked about here recently. Maybe we've talked about this before, but remind me of what your answer is. But if they really like somebody, like if they really liked Anthony Richardson and Richardson was still dangling there at seven and eight in the draft with Carolina on the board ready to snatch him up, I would say go trade up. It's do, you know, do whatever you need to get a guy that you're in love with. I'd feel the same way about Stroud or Young as well. I'd, I'd feel less so about about Levis, and I think you and I are, are on agreement on that. Um, but I think that they, since they're not swinging big via trade or free agency, 
they should be thinking quarterback at 16 or higher if they like somebody. I am not a, yeah, I am not I mean, opposed I'm, to that. Are you? No, not at all. I've always been of the mindset that if you really, really like a quarterback, you should do everything in your power to go get him. I think the quarterback position is the one position where you can't really overspend. Now, if you miss, obviously it's an overspend, and we've seen that problem um, in the past. But if, like you said, if, if Richardson's sitting there at something like six or seven and they love him, you should do everything in your power to go get him. Even if they love someone like Will Levis. If they love someone like Will Levis and he's still sitting there at 16, I think you should take him. I wouldn't, but we've, we've seen how uh, quarterback evaluation can be kind of all over the place. So if they love someone like Will Levis, I, I think they have to do everything in their power to do it because if you have that quarterback, it just makes everything so much easier. I agree. All right, uh, this was the quarterback show with Nick Ackridge. We'll do more with him as we approach the draft and look at offensive linemen and corners, et cetera. Uh, Thanks for doing this. As always, I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. You have a good one. Nick Ackridge, Pro Football Focus data analyst. Uh, Follow him at PFF underscore Nick Ackridge. All right, up next, let's talk some college hoops. It's conference tournament time. We'll have the bracket unveiled on Sunday evening. One of the best bracketologists out there is Patrick Stevens. He'll join us next. All right, this segment of the show is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, KevinDC, and they'll allow you to do something that most books don't allow you to do. They'll allow you to cash in and cash out quickly. You only have to bet your deposit amount one time and you can cash out right away. And it's perfect for events like March Madness, the tournament, even conference tournaments this weekend, um, where you just feel like betting for the weekend, but you're not going to do it when baseball starts. Uh, MyBookie offers you that opportunity. MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, Kevin. DC. Uh, Jumping on with us right now is Patrick Stevens. Of course, Patrick has been covering so many college sports in our area for such a long period of time and has been doing uh, the college bracketology for the Washington Post for many years. You can follow uh, Patrick on Twitter at D1S Course, C-O-U-R-S-E. He's with us right now as we uh, are uh, at you know mid mid portion of conference tournament week. Um, Maryland hasn't played a game. They'll play on Thursday night. Um, and I want to start there because I think most of our listeners that are into college hoops are into the local teams. And we'll start with uh, Maryland. What would they have been? Where would you have had them on the seed line had they held on and beaten Penn State versus where you have them now? Yeah, that's probably at this point worth maybe a line. I mean, I think I'd probably have them on the seven line uh, if they'd won that game. I mean, it's kind of fluid in that six, seven, eight, nine range at this point. There really isn't a massive difference between the tail end of the six line and, and basically most of the eight line and the beginnings of the nine line. So it's probably worth a little bit. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I think they've played themselves into a spot where. They're probably going to have to deal with a one or a two seed if they do happen to win their first game in the NCAA tournament. 
So is there anything they can do? We know that in more recent years that these conference tournaments haven't been weighted um, very heavily at all. Is there anything they can do in the Big Ten tournament to get out of the 8-9 situation where they've got to face a Houston or a Bama or a UCLA in the second round? I mean, maybe make the final. I mean, the thing is, is first of all, you're right when you say that the, that the there has not been an overwhelming amount of weight placed on conference tournaments of late. Uh, you haven't had a situation like, for example, the classic 04 Maryland that was the sixth seed in the ACC tournament ended up a sixth seed overall in the NCAA tournament after winning that ACC tournament. You think about last year, Virginia Tech. Uh, made that run in the ACC tournament, it netted them an 11 seed. So, yeah, I think for for Maryland, um, you win two or three games, maybe you can get yourself up to the sixth line. Uh, the other thing to remember that Big Ten final doesn't end until Sunday, about a half hour or so yeah. before the selection show. So, you know, you've seen plenty of times over the years where it looked like that game didn't have any sort of impact at all because. You know, it's hard for them to do a whole lot with it, right? Like, you know, and and the process that they go through is they spend so much time on seeding the field, and you're talking about one single game at the end of a 34-35 game sample size. The thought is is it just isn't going to move the needle that much one way or the other. You know, and that's, I think, something that people don't quite get, that, A, every game is equal, and, two, that the seeding is what the committee – spends more time on than anything else by a a vast amount. The actual bracketing exercise is kind of haphazard, and they'd frankly be wise to build an extra couple hours into that or or maybe kind of try to twist some arms and try to get some of those conference tournament games to be done maybe an hour or two early. You've been to a lot of Maryland games this year. What do you think of their chances uh, next week? And and you haven't seen a bracket, but just overall – what kind of team do you think they have? What is what are what are they capable of? Well, I think at their best, um, you know, they they they've obviously done very good work. But at their best, they've been at home. And I look at uh, I look at what they've done away from home. And the last time they beat a good team outside of College Park was before Thanksgiving. Since then, they've beaten Louisville and Minnesota, and nobody would accuse either of those teams of being particularly good. So. I suspect that Maryland's season will come to an end sometime next weekend, whether that's in a 7-10 or an 8-9 game where you're in a toss-up situation or while dealing with a Houston or an Alabama or a UCLA or whoever it may be, uh, or a Kansas or someone like that. Uh, I I think Maryland has come pretty close to maxing out what it has. Uh, You can certainly look at a few games that they gave up late, Nebraska and Penn State are the two that come to mind immediately, and say, you know, you know, they, they, they left a couple wins on the table. Uh, but I also think that when you look at what they've done at home, there's probably a few games there that you go, well, they played better than you could have possibly expected them to play uh, against a Purdue, against an Indiana in the second half. And so I, I, I tend to think that for, for Maryland at this point, uh, that simply getting into the tournament is a win based on what we would have thought of them back at the beginning of November. Uh, that said, I, I don't know if they're going to have the depth or the size to match up 
with some of the better teams in the country, a top-eight type of team that they would likely have to face in a second-round scenario. Yeah, I kind of have been saying all year long, I equate this team to kind of like the 2021 team, which was supposed to be a rebuilding season after the you know Big Ten championship year where they didn't get to play in the tournament. And I just thought they overachieved all year long. They beat UConn you know, as a 10 seed. I think uh, UConn was the seven. And then Alabama just had way too much for them you know, in the second round. And I kind of envision something similar. You know, in an 8-9 game, I think you have them against Auburn, um, you know, in Auburn or in Arkansas, somebody like that, and then you know, that's not, that's not a good, that's not a good matchup, by the way. Uh, neither one of them are really. Um, I'm going to ask you just about the Big Ten in general here because I think some of the matchups are going to be interesting when they get into the fe- into the, to the field of 68. But I just think that this team, like Willard, squeezed as much as you were going to squeeze out of this group, and I thought Turgeon two years ago squeezed as much as you were going to squeeze. Out out of that 21 team that didn't have sticks or Cowan on it um, after they graduated. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I, I thought that 21 was the best coaching job that Turgeon did in his time at Maryland. Now he was also responsible for the state of that roster, um, which was you know maybe his worst off season going into right. the year, which understandable in some ways uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but you know I think Kevin Willard did a fine job. You know I think I think when you look at the guys that they brought in, you know, they got a lot of mileage out of Jameer Young. I, I thought he would be a guy that would average 13 or 14 a game in, comp, in, in league play, or overall, I should say, when he arrived from Charlotte. He's been better than I thought he would be, and I was, I was willing to give him a fair bit of credit. You know, Patrick Emelian has been a really valuable piece for them. Super and for people that like, And for people that like basketball and enjoy watching basketball, He's a really fun player to watch because yeah. of just how much stuff he does right. Uh, you know, and they got decent mileage out of Hakeem Hart and decent mileage out of Dante Scott. And, and Julian Reese has gotten better over the course of the season. Uh, they're just not particularly deep. Ian Martinez is a guy that got better this year too. Right. So there was a lot of there was a lot of improvement. Uh, but but that said, you know, there is kind of I think a cap. Uh, to what this what this team can really do, and, and again to kind of go back to the earlier point, you know they, they've just been so much better as a home court team that you wonder how much anything is realistically going to travel for them here over the next couple weekends. Yeah, and they're an older team too, which which helped a lot. But yeah, as far at least they don't have to play a true road game, and they were pretty good in their neutral floor games early in the year against St. Louis and Miami. Um, all right, uh, tell me about the Big Ten and what your expectations are going into the tournament. How many teams in the Big Ten do you think can make the Final Four? Gosh, I, I don't think I trust any of them. I, uh, I, I so you you don't you I, don't trust Purdue. No, no, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't trust Purdue, and I, I certainly don't trust Indiana, and I certainly don't trust the Rats. I mean, I, I've watched all these teams come through town, basically, yeah. right? And and have seen them, you know, all of them lose. And so there's a little bit of you know, do you trust what your eyes tell you? But there's also this issue that I think you know kind of gets overlooked in uh, in the discussion about the league. Which is who? Who's actually the good guards in this league? Right, like per- Purdue doesn't you know, have them. Purdue doesn't have them. They're too yep. young. 
Um, Northwestern, ha- Northwestern's got him, and it's certainly certainly Bowie's, you know, a good guard, and Jameer Young's an excellent guard. Um, yes, I mean the the, li- the list basically is Northwestern has the best backcourt in the league, right. with Bowie and Audich. Yeah, and I don't even think it's particularly close that they have the best backcourt in the league. Okay, you got Jameer Young, you have Jalen Pickett at Penn State, but he plays out of the post. Yeah, he does. So do you count him as a do you, do you count him as a guard or not? I mean, he's guard side. And then you know Terrence Shannon is is more of a wing, right? More of a more of a two slash yep. three type than than a one, and even not even that much of a two really. So, so those are your guards. Like it's not a great guard league. And I I I, I think about I mean, when I when I think you know consider what happens in March. It's such a it's such a guard driven thing. Like you look at how teams have beaten Purdue. They've kind of just said, okay, Zach Eady is a seven foot four monster, and if he goes and gets twenty five and sixteen against us, but we slow down everybody else, we got a pretty good chance to win. And you look at Indiana, and, and you say kind of the same thing about Trace Jackson Davis. Uh, let him get his, and if you can contain everybody else, you're probably going to have a pretty good chance to win. Uh, and we can start going through the rest of the teams in that league, and. You know, Rutgers, if, if they do get in, they, they can't score enough to make a no. run. Iowa doesn't Iowa doesn't defend enough to, to be able to make a serious run, and I'm pretty much done placing any faith in them after last season. Uh, once they got into Mar- once they got into the tournament, uh, you know, we could run. You know, this is not a vintage Michigan State team by any stretch. It's not, Illinois but but been- I would never count them out from just beating people up in the first two weekends to get to the there's, next weekend. There's, 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 no, there's no doubt. And in some ways, maybe they're the best. Maybe they're the most likely Final Four team out of that league. I just know that I've watched enough of these teams, um, and it, it's, not, it's not the most uh, aesthetically pleasing basketball, for sure. <laughs> I, just, I just don't think they're that good. I think that the thing is, it reminds me, the comparison I've made, is it reminds me of, like, late, 2000s uh, ACC football, where you had like a bunch of eight and four teams, and we all could sit there and say, "Yeah, there's a bunch of teams in this league that are between 20 and 40 nationally." But you know, how many of them are really that good? Like, how many of them are capable of, of hanging with 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 the top 10 in the country on a consistent basis? And the answer is is that they didn't have those teams. And besides, maybe Purdue, which I, I do think has a decent chance to make it to the second weekend, simply because. You know, Edie is a monster, and teams that haven't dealt with him are probably going to struggle a bit uh, to, to cope with him. Uh, but this is also the same Purdue team, granted different players, but the same same Purdue program that that lost to St. Peter's last year yeah, in, in the Sweet Sixteen with Jaden Ivy. Yeah, with with, with Jaden Ivy. So you know, I I, I just look at, at at the league, and and you know, at least this year we haven't had to listen to a constant drumbeat of how awesome the Big Ten is, because we all knew better to begin with. And now uh, you, you have a, you know, this crop of 11 and 9 and 12 and 18 uh, that you kind of size up and you go, you know what, they're decent, but they're nothing special. And you know, there's certainly some teams that have a right to celebrate interesting or fun or, or surprising seasons. Like Northwestern should be thrilled. You know, Maryland should be thrilled. Penn State's had a nice season for what they are. Um, and there's a few other teams like that too, but again, kind of back to the the, the larger point, I, I don't, I have a hard time seeing 
any of those teams winning four games in a row. You know, Purdue and, and maybe Michigan State would be the two most likely of the bunch. And I think I'd probably say Indiana right after that. But I, I don't I don't feel like it's likely that we see any of those teams sticking around for the last weekend of the tournament. And I don't think we're going to see that many stick around for the second weekend of the tournament. It would not surprise me if we're sitting here in another two weeks or so and we're talking about how the Big Ten went 5-8 and eight on the first weekend and only got one team into the second weekend. Um, yeah, I don't think I'd be that surprised either. I'd be disappointed, but I wouldn't be that surprised. I think Indiana has... Um, in Hood Shafino, a player that could absolutely go on a tear and blow up. I've seen him play a few games at a ridiculously high level as a scorer, you know, in the backcourt, by the way. Um, and I think they're an interesting team. But uh, the Purdue thing, I think, is fascinating. I, I, I thought those guards, those freshman guards early on, were going to be a problem for the rest of the league, and they just haven't been. Um, and maybe they will be next year, um, but Edie won't be uh, here. Um, I just love Matt Painter as a coach, and yet, you know, uh, they lose to St. Peter's, and they lost to whoever they lost to in the first round was at North Texas two years ago, and then that, that sounds right, yeah, something like that. And then you know the Carson Edwards game against UVA was really the chance for them to win the whole thing, um, and they had you know UVA dead to right multiple times and lost in overtime, and Virginia went on to win the national championship. But I I think I'm with you with the Big Ten. Look, the style of play. Um, has for whatever reason, you know, worn teams out, and it seems like they've gotten to the, you know, the big tournament. And now all of a sudden, you got teams that want to run, and teams that are running off made buckets, and it's not the same grinded out style. I don't know if that's hurt a little bit. Who knows? Um, it's cyclical. I, I, I have I have one other I have one other thing that I think has some validity, and and that is that it is I don't think there's another power conference that has as much time zone crossover as you see in the Big Ten, where you have, you're constantly going from one time zone to another during the course of the season. You're the playing Big 12. 10 road games. Yeah. The Big 12, the Big 12 is almost entirely in the center. That's time true, zone. except for West Virginia. West Virginia, right, right, right. Up, a, up a creek. Yeah. The SEC has that crossover a little bit too, but, you know. Wait if, till if, USC if and UCLA get in the league. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I and I, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how that impacts things. But when you're going from when you're playing one of those Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday combinations where you're you know, you're at Minnesota, home on Wednesday, and then let's say at Ohio State on Sunday. I, I know I'm starting to sound like Kevin Wilson. Or at Nebraska, yeah, even worse. Uh, uh, <clears> or Ohio State's in Eastern time zone. Yeah. Right. But but the the point the point yeah, being of course. is I got that it. you know, it's it, it's uh, you know I think there's I think there's more more of a challenge to that than people give it credit for. Uh, let's move on to Virginia. Um, I I've watched them enough down the stretch. I'm not overly impressed. Uh, losing at Carolina, the BC loss was bad. They should have lost to Notre Dame. They could have lost to Louisville on the road, which would have been a devastating uh, loss. What do you think their upside is? Upside of the seed is probably the four line, maybe a three if they win the ACC tournament. But upside in terms of of the actual season, I, I just don't think that they score enough uh, to realistically be much more than maybe a Sweet Sixteen team. I could see I could see them slogging their way 
to a couple victories in Greensboro next weekend as a four or a five seed, just kind of beating people up and winning 59-55 or something like that. Uh, but it's also, it, it, this is not one of those truly elite Virginia defenses. They're good. Uh, you know, like, this, Virginia's not going to field a bad defensive team. But this is not one of those smothering, uh, just take you out of everything type of Virginia defenses that we've seen over the years. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that Virginia is obviously a team that takes some effort to adjust to and to deal with. Uh, but the, you know, the deal's the same in, in terms of facing that team. If you have guards that can get to the bucket or you have outside shooters, you can beat them. That's how they were, you know, basically in, from 2016, you know, when Syracuse was able to shoot its way past them with that, you know, coming back from that big deficit in the Elite Eight, uh, to 2018 with UMBC, basically shot 50% from three, had some little guards that could get to the bucket. You know, over and over and over again, when we've seen Virginia struggle, that has a lot to do with it. And so there's a little bit of matchup oriented there. Uh, but I also think that the, the cohesion and sort of a, uh, you know, the pro- program foundation, if you will, is strong enough for them to be able to win a game or two. But this is, I don't think this is a national title contender by any stretch of the match. One more local question, and then I want to get back to some uh, big-picture questions on the tournament and the bracket. Who gets the job at Georgetown, assuming Patrick is bought out and doesn't come back? Yeah, I, 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 first of all, I, I think you almost have to assume that, that there will be some sort of an announcement in the next week or two uh, about uh, you know, Ewing stepping aside and, and probably having a nice big cat, check to cash, as well he should. Uh, you know, if somebody's willing to give you the the contract extension, you shouldn't turn it down. You certainly shouldn't turn down the, the buyout money. Right. Uh, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I think that, you know, that a lot of the questions around Georgetown are, you know, who ultimately is kind of running things and and who ultimately is also going to have a say in, in how your program is run. And so... You know, I, 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 I don't know where they go. You know, I've, I've thought of a couple names uh, in recent weeks, you know, that might fit the profile, right? Like, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, like, subtleties to that job. And the other thing, too, is they haven't had an open coaching search in 50 years, right. basically. You know, so you don't know, even if they, even if they do one, what it's going to look like. But I'll give you a name that I like, and, and it's possible – that he's going to be in the mix for other gigs. But I think the biggest thing that Georgetown simply needs right now, and this sounds really obvious, but when you're, when you're as bad as they've been the last couple of years, you really do need to do this. They need a guy that can coach basketball. They just need a guy that's a good basketball coach. Yeah. And a guy that comes to mind that has worked in cities. He's worked in Indianapolis and Atlanta and now in New Orleans. Uh, and a guy that really knows what he's doing has a great personality, would really kind of galvanize things is Ron Hunter down at Tulane. Yeah. The guy knows what he's doing. That would that would be a guy that, that would be on my radar. You know, the the name that everybody wants to bring up is Rick Pitino. I don't know if Rick Pitino is the right match for Georgetown as an institution and how it wishes to portray itself. And I think you can read between the lines as to as to kind of what that implies. 
That doesn't mean Rick Pitino can't coach. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean Rick Pitino can't recruit. Anybody that's seen Iona this year and a fair number of other Metro Atlantic teams realizes that, that he recruited a championship team. Like, basically, they're just bigger and stronger and faster than everybody in that league. And he would certainly be able to do wonders at Georgetown if he was the head coach. But I don't know if that's the road that the Hoyas are going to take. I, I tend to think that, you know, you, you look at what, what they've done uh, in the past, you know, it, an assistant in Escherich was elevated. That was obviously sort of set up by John Thompson Jr. JT3 comes in. He's been the head coach at Princeton. Patrick Ewing, a former player and an NBA assistant. It's all been in the family. I, I don't, it's all been in the family. So, you, so there's, no, there's no breadcrumbs to follow as to, as to what they would do. I, 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 I struggle to know what that would look like. I struggle to know what a Georgetown program looks like if it just behaves like a 21st century college basketball program that doesn't have the secrecy and sort of the, you know, obviously the paranoia is the, is the word associated with it. But it is a program that, you know, it's very much rooted in what it was 30, 40 years ago. And, you know, for them to be able to succeed moving forward, they are going to have to bring themselves into the 21st century completely. And I'll be curious to see if that happens because I don't think it's a guarantee. Yeah, I mean, do you think Chris Holtman's going to be available after this year in Columbus? That's a good question. I joked after you know they lost to Maryland in College Park in late January that the person that was most upset with the Buckeyes losing in the football semifinals was Chris Holtman because suddenly people were going to start paying attention to him, and then things never got. Well, they any were ranked from at there. the time. They were ranked at the time, if they you were, recall. They were. They were, and they, but they were also erratic to that point. Right. And so, I, I, I think that I, I think it's possible. I mean, I feel like because I, I think he's like a good coach. I, I do think he's a good coach. I don't know if he's a great coach, and I don't know how much they really care about basketball. Uh, to you know, if they're not just going to give him an extra year before maybe they send him packing after next season or something. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know if that's the right match for Georgetown as well. Uh, but maybe. I mean, he obviously spent time in the Big East at Butler. Um, but you know, there's a few other names that are floating around out there that Chris know, Chris Collins, Chris Collins, maybe. Um, although I suspect that he can settle in for another five or six years at Northwestern now without yeah. too much trouble. Um, I'll give you a name that, that I'm intrigued by just because I think he's going to be in the tournament this year. He's been in the tournament at his current school once before. He was in the tournament at another school previously. Uh, he's got a good personality, would be a good face of the program type. Uh, it is an East Coast guy, if not necessarily a D.C. guy. And that's Kevin Keats at NC State, yeah. who might be, might be somebody that has kind of, after six years, realized that you know even though Krzyzewski and Roy Williams are gone. Those the Duke and Carolina behemoths, and the expectations of having to match those teams. Uh, those expectations wear on you after a while, and and they've worn on pretty much everybody, basically since Jim Valvano left, uh, or was ousted, or however you want to put it. So I, I'm I, I think that might be a guy that, given his background uh, as as a as somebody that, that has worked the portal reasonably well. Uh, might be somebody that, that, that 
could be of some appeal on the hilltop. NC State, they're going to make it, right? I think they're going to. I mean, yeah. they play uh, they play Virginia Tech later today, and I think as long as they win that game, there's not going to be much of a reason to keep them out. I, I, I keep saying that, you know, every year I say it, there's, there's 36 at-larges. They're, they're not going to just take 32. <laughs> every, every year, you and I say the same thing. It's like, no, Maryland doesn't have a chance. I'm like, they got to fill out the bracket. you got to have 68 you know, in the I, bracket, and it's hard to find them. By I, the way, Herb Sendek was the biggest kind of mistake they ever made and, and not kind of realizing he was one hell of a coach and they were winning and going to tournaments because it's been a nightmare with the exception of that brief period of Gottfried. I actually think Kevin Keats is a, is a good coach, and NC State's, uh, you would agree with this, right? It's a it's a better job than Georgetown. Yeah, I think so. I think so. yeah. So anyway, but but that said, you know it. You know the Big East still has some cachet. Yeah, you've got a gleaming practice facility. You Georgetown is a national brand, um, and you're not going to have people like constantly comparing you to your neighbors, basically, like. You know, Georgetown and Maryland, yes, they're, they operate in the same market, but they've sort of shadow boxed, right, for, for basically the last 40 years. They've just sort of been, you know, in, in almost their own little worlds, except for the rare intersections that they've had. Yeah, they, sh- so, it, they shouldn't be, by the way. That. They shouldn't be. They should play every year, but continue. But my, my, my point being, like, you don't have those comparisons. and Instead, you're in a league full of city schools, which the Big East still basically is, even if it's more spread out than its original iteration, and you're dealing with the Villanovas and the and the Providences and Seton Halls and Xavier's of the world, you know that that is not the same, you know, and it's not it's not quite the same pressure cooker. And let's be honest, like if Georgetown let Patrick Ewing stick around after a year in which he went what six and twenty five last year. Then the, the, the rope's probably the, the leash is probably going to be fairly long. Yeah, it's just fallen off so much. They, I mean, it's it, you know I look at Louisville this year and Georgetown of last year in particular, and it's almost impossible in this day and age to think of those two programs being as bad as they've been. Um, Louisville, really, I mean, I don't know how Kenny Payne keeps his job, even though they just gave him that massive extension. It's crazy. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about the tournament real quickly. Um, so give me kind of the, the big time bubble teams. And I, I want to start with North Carolina. What do you think the chances, what do they need to do in the ACC tournament to avoid becoming the first preseason AP number one team not to make the tournament? I think they need to win at least three games. I mean, because beating Boston College tonight isn't going to do them any good. So if they win that game, they get Virginia next. And then after that, you've got Clemson or NC State or, or Virginia Tech waiting for you. And, you know, that that's kind of a wobbly game there, right? Like, I mean, it's not that it would be a bad loss, but they need good wins. And so I think they need to pick up a couple decent victories uh, while they're in Greensboro. And, and, and frankly, I don't know if they can. You, you watch them, and all year, they just haven't been right. And some of this comes down to the idea of, well, you know, we put a little too much faith in, in uh, you know, they had a five-game winning streak at the right time last year, and everybody thought they were going to be awesome. But even if they'd been a second-round team last year, and they still brought back 
R.J. Davis and Caleb Love and Armando Baycott and Leaky Black is kind of the core group, you would have looked at that even without that Final Four and said that's probably the makings of a top-20 team. So, you know, and here they are, and, and you wouldn't even consider them a top-40 team at this point. And it, it, it's really been one of the more befuddling storylines of the season is the why Carolina hasn't been able to figure things out. Yeah. And so if, it's gonna requ- I think it's going to require at least a trip to the, the ACC title game. Um, what about Michigan? Those two painful losses to Illinois, a game that they seemingly had a really good chance to close out, and then to Indiana in overtime. Both of, the, of those games um, went to uh, overtime. They lost both of them. People thought they needed at least one, if not both of them. What, what do they need to do in the Big Ten tournament to get there? I think they'd be, they have Rutgers, right, in that first game. Um, I feel like they probably need to win at least twice while they're in Chicago. You know, beating Rutgers would be doubly good for them because it would it would help them and hurt Rutgers, which has played its way down to the edge of the field. And the, basically, you know, you look at, at the Scarlet Knights and they they have some good wins and they also have those befuddling losses. Uh, and they haven't been the same uh, since the Mag Kid got hurt. Uh, you know, defensively, they just haven't been the same team. They're still good, but not the same team. And so, you know, Michigan wins that game, then they get Purdue. I think that would be the kind of thing that, that could vault them into the field. I don't know if just one win is going to be able to do it for the Wolverines. You've got Penn State out. I thought when they tipped it in at the buzzer that that was their trip and that they were in on Sunday that they needed to beat Maryland. Um, you still have them out. So what do, do they need to beat Illinois to get in? I, I think they need at least one. I, I think their, I think their uh, um, necessity is probably a little less than, than maybe a couple other teams in that league. You, know, you look at their profile – it almost depends on which angle you're trying to look at it. In some ways, it's like, well, there's not a lot bad there. And then you kind of shake the etch a sketch a bit. And, you know, maybe there's not quite enough good there either. Uh, I think they're a team that will certainly be keeping an eye out for any sort of bid snatchers lurking in other leagues. There's, there's uh, not going to be one out of the West Coast Conference, obviously, after Gonzaga won that. Right. Uh, but there's obviously some other conferences where you're going to have to be concerned with that sort of stuff. So for the moment, you know, I, I think that, that Penn State probably does have at least a little bit of work left in front of it. All right. Um, what do you think the committee – or what does the committee say they use more than anything in evaluating these teams? Is it the net rankings? Is uh, do, Does Ken Palm come into this at all? Um, what Give us the criteria that that committee's looking at in evaluating teams. The net ranking is a sorting tool, and so the way that that they use it is by saying, "All right, this is how we're going to line up the number of quad one wins you have." And I think that I still believe the the raw number of quality high end victories is something that really moves the needle. Which is why I don't think Wisconsin is done by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think Wisconsin's good, but you look at their profile and they have six quad one wins. And you'd say they're, they're going to find their way. If they're not in the field, they're certainly in the conversation. So I think that's a big deal. You know, the Ken Palm stuff, I think, uh, is probably misinterpreted a bit. The committee prefers the, the results-based metrics like 
the KPI or the strength of record compared to the predictive metrics such as Ken Palm or the staggering rate. So, you know, I think uh, the Ken Palm numbers tend to get a little overrated. You know, ESPN's metric of choice uh, tends to be overrated, although I think it only gets mentioned on basically one network. Uh, it really, you know, the committee tries to look at that results-based stuff and who you beat and where you beat them. Um, and, and, you know, do you have road wins? Do you, did, you, did you not play a terrible non-conference schedule? There's all these little check, box, check marks on a profile, and, you know, sometimes the team that, that has the least offensive profile is <laughs> like, well, they don't have any bad losses, and they didn't play an awful schedule, and they have a few decent wins, yeah. and maybe they're 19-12, and 12, but there's nothing that says, oh, God, they don't belong. Like, Michigan, for example, they haven't lost to Central Michigan, a team that's 300-plus in the, in the net rankings. Like, that's a, that is one of those things that you go, well, you know, all these other teams don't have that. And so that's something a little extra that a team like that has to overcome. I think I think a fascinating um, case all year long, and I think even with the win over Kansas State over the weekend, it's probably not enough. Is just West Virginia, and you know who they've beaten, and and I they they have to have probably seven or eight quad one wins. I'm guessing somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and it's like six. It's it, like six. okay, it's six. And then the, the teams they lost to were all really good teams, pretty much all year uh, as well. Like you don't think they have a chance, even though you'd probably say, right, that they're one of the best 34 at-large teams. Like, if they were to... No, if, no, they're... I, I, I think they're almost... I, I think if they win tonight against Texas Tech, not only are they in the field, they don't go to Dayton. Interesting. They'll, they'll okay. Be, they'll be fine. They're, on, the team sheet has six numbers, six metrics that, are, that they have ranked that are listed there, and West Virginia is in the top 35 of all six of them. This, so, is, this is a team, by the way, that is four games under 500 in their league, people, who aren't – most of, uh, of our audience is not paying attention. West Virginia is 18-13, and 13 and they finish 7-11, and 11, and third to last in the Big 12, and they're probably going to go to the tournament. What's the worst conference record to ever make the NCAA tournament? Do you know? There's been, there's been some four under 500 teams. I feel like the Big 12 had one of those a few years ago. Um, I know there was a Florida State team that went six and ten in the ACC that got in. Um, I don't remember that list off the top of my head. If, if I was if I was doing this this sitting at my laptop, I probably could have looked it up pretty quickly for you. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it, it's happened before, uh, and it'll probably happen again as you have these super conferences continue to uh, grow and grow and grow. Crazy. Um, all right, last one for Patrick Stevens. I know I kind of feel like we have said this the last few years, but I kind of view this field going into it as wide open. Like, I, I literally think there are 15 teams that could potentially win the national championship and maybe 20 to 25 that could make the final four. What do you think? I think it's probably something along those lines. I think part of the reason people say that it is a wide-open year is because we don't see Duke being awesome or, we, or Carolina's not as relevant or Kentucky hasn't been as good. So I think that's part of what's going on there. But I think part of it, too, is, is that you know, 
sit there and wonder, okay, well, Alabama's good, but they're not going to shoot the snot out of the ball every single game. And so they're going to be a little vulnerable. You look at, you look at Houston, and I, I, love, I think I trust Houston more than any other Me team too. in the field. Me too. But, but, you know, their offense isn't always right. the, the most beautiful thing in the world either. Um, you know, we can run down the list of, of teams here. UCLA you know, can't score. Or they can struggle UCLA to score. Struggles to score. Um, I mean, Kansas is good, but they're not as good as they were last year. Right. I think so, Houston's the team. You know, the more and more I think about him, first of all, I love Kelvin Sampson. All he does is win and win big everywhere he goes, and he's already gotten this team to the Final Four. And they've got you know they've got some veteran players on this team. Obviously, Sasser. Um, I think that they like they're the team that I guess I would be surprised if they were bounced out early. Maybe that's the way to yeah. say it now. Not if they're not, you know, in the in the final four, but if they got bounced out early because it is such a wide open field. But yeah, so you see a lot of. T- if I were to tell you that a team um, not you know seated in the top sixteen won the national championship, that's right outside your top fifteen. But let's just say got to the national championship game. Give me that team. Oof. Um, you know, they've been really inconsistent all year, but they've also played well in the tournament the last couple seasons. You know, Arkansas's healthier now. You know, maybe that's a team that could get on a burner. Um, I'm trying to think of who else you might throw in there. Here's one, because they're finally healthy. Duke. Duke's finally healthy. They, they figured that they were going to be counting on the combination of Jeremy Roach, Derek Whitehead and Derek Lively this season in John Shire's first year as head coach. And they're not, by and the way, just guys, to let everybody know, they're not going to be a top four seed in a region. I just want yes, people to understand gonna, that. Gonna, yeah. Yeah, they're going to be a they're going to be a five or a six seed probably. But they, you know, when you, when you size up, you know, th- those guys didn't all play twenty five minutes in the same game until about November, until about uh, February fourteenth. So. You know, they haven't been together for this entire season. So, I just, I think that's a team that has a chance to, to make a run. I think Kentucky has a chance I was to make just a run, ask given you about how that. well it's yep. played. Yeah, I agree. So... Yeah, that that that's that that was the team that I was wondering if you would mention because I think Kentucky right now with the way they're playing, and by the way, it, it's just kind of a um, it's kind of a weird situation there. I mean, you have this sense that he's going to be the Texas head coach next year, right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly that wouldn't be that wouldn't be the sort of thing that would be shocking based on. Uh, you know, the fact that it seems like his Kentucky thing has kind of played itself out and Texas is willing to, you know, throw money at everybody and everything under the sun. But ultimately, you know, that, that maybe Texas makes a run and their hand is forced a little bit, and, and Rodney Terry's the next head, head, full-time yeah. head coach. He would deserve it considering what happened there. And they're going to be a, a no doubt. They're going to be a top two or three. They're going to be a two or a three seed. You've got them as a two, I think. I, I think they're the number six team on the board right now. Yeah, I don't think they can fall past. I don't think they're going to fall to the three line. So, 
All right, this was great, as usual. Um, I've kept you too long. Patrick Stevens, uh, follow him on Twitter, at D1S Course, C-O-U-R-S-E. Read him in the post. Um, he covers so much uh, in college sports and so much of it local college sports. Where are you right now? What tournament are you at right now? Well, I actually just pulled into the parking lot at the uh, site of the media shuttle at the ACC tournament. Okay. So I will be in Greensboro for the next couple days. All right. Uh, enjoy that. I used to love Greensboro for the ACC tournament, but I'm a Big Ten guy now, uh, Patrick. Um, so it's Chicago <laughs> that I'll be focused on uh, this weekend. Thanks, as always. Hope you're well. Awesome. You take care, Kevin. All right, that's it for the show today. Thanks to Patrick Stevens. Thanks to Nick Ackridge. I'll be back tomorrow with Tommy.